I love the fact that you take a secondary product, pork shoulder, jowl, whatever it might be, and turn that into a premium product. Like if, you know, but I like the fact of you buy a product at $7, $9, and then you can put a skill to it and you can sell it for $39. I like that. You're paying for the skill. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. After learning the craft of soft charcuterie in kitchens in England and Australia, Robbie Bell hung up his chefing apron and began a career as a charcutier. Together with his wife, he's created one of Australia's most successful brands by utilising chefs in the production kitchen and creating connections across the country. Robbie, how do you go from operating at such a high level as a chef and move in the direction of charcuterie? Well, it's it's funny what a baby will do to you, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's look, it's charcuterie and terrines and pate, more the quicker charcuterie as opposed to the fermenting long style fats charcuterie is what we do. Uh, and it's something that I've in, in Europe and in the, in the restaurants in England that we've done for a lot of years. I, I worked for a chef called Terry Laybourne and he was massive into using up all the bits and bobs and putting the a terrine on the, on the lunch menu or, you know, on the TDH back in them days and things. And just using all the bits and bobs up and making money. So I was always interested in it. A lot of chefs are. You probably find, you know, it's very crafty, you know, it's very um, skill-based, turning uh, a a secondary product into a premium product. It's, it's, you know, it's more chefs really enjoy doing that thing. So, you know, it was something that I always loved. And then we had a baby and uh, I did a few business plans to boil it up a little bit and and decided that this was was an opportunity for a business. And that's how we got to where we are now, basically. Making the step and the leap is one thing and having a bit of that background, but um, what was it like with the product development? Was there a lot of um, errors and mistakes before you made the leap? Well, I was actually quite lucky because I've I've had a lot of recipes over the years. You know, I've picked up heaps of recipes, uh, friends that have worked in different places, you know, the recipes from Terry Labour and a lot of the recipes around Europe that a lot of the chefs use the same pate recipes and whatnot that get passed from kitchen to kitchen. So I always had that base. But to be honest, it all started when I was working at Rockpool and I um as, a, as we're talking about development, I was doing it. It was at Christmas and I was making uh, hampers for the staff for Christmas for the guys who worked over Christmas. And um and I, and we did that, and all the staff collected them on the um, on Christmas Eve. And then as we come back Boxing Day and the twenty eighth, seventh, twenty eighth, twenty ninth, people saying, "Oh, they were fantastic! Uh, you should start making them." So I kind of and, and it was it was Amy actually that actually said that to me. Uh, she, I think she now works at Point Leo, and she was like, "You should start making them." And I thought, well, you know, and that's how it kind of developed into a business. And I guess that was the instant feedback that I needed, really. Well, let's go back. Uh, and have a look at how you first got interested in food. What what sort of role did food play in your family as a kid? Like we, I'm very much a, from a family who, you know, a hot meal was always on the table every night, five o'clock. Then dad would come home, mum would have cooked dinner throughout the throughout the day. You know, it would be like, you know, mashed potato, liver, liver and onions would be one. But my mum used to put me, used to cook me sausages in the liver and onion gravy because I didn't like liver especially not boiled liver in gravy and water. So I don't know what it was, but yeah, but it was always that, you know, homemade lasagnas and homemade curries. But the biggest influence was probably my grandmother. She was a old school, always had a penny on, 
you know, she would be making quiches, corned beef slices, uh, ham, ham, uh, like ham, ham and egg pies. She'd be plucking pigeons. You know, someone would drop off salmon off. I, I've got two, two of my family members who actually used to work on the trawlers, so on the boats, on the trawler ships. And um, so, like, you know, there'd be fish getting dropped off all the time. And so she was a big, she was old, fairy cakes, just everything, you know what I mean? Like, as grandmothers used to do, and it wouldn't be in the fridge, you'd just go outside in the, back in the day, there would be, like, where the outhouse used to be, where the bathrooms and that used to be. But over the over the time, they, they kind of re, they bricked over that. So you used to open the back door, and then there'd be, like, an alleyway, and then the toilet would be there. But then they bricked that over as, you know, as times went on. And that's where she used to keep all the, all the all the pastries and the combi slices and all these kind of things just on the just on a bench there like outside never went in the fridge and I've got maybe I think I've got like 18 or I might even have over 20 cousins now and um so yeah there'll be people coming in and out the door would be just slamming open and shutting open and shutting people be grabbing mince pies and pork pies and it was that kind of house do you know what I mean it was so I was always around that and um and I was an only child so from having a lot of cousins excuse me, from having a lot of cousins, I used to spend a lot of time there, heaps and heaps of time there. So I was always around my nana baking, making pastries, spreading it, press, uh, pressing it with your fingers. And and then she taught me how to make uh, toffee. So it was like, I've got it, I've still got the recipe there, nana's toffee. So, and then I learned that you could make toffee. And then, and then once I learned how to make it, I was like, oh, then I can start selling it. So then I started selling toffee at school. So then that, the, the, then the, 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 the marriage between making something and selling something was, I was like, oh, so you can make, you can buy this sugar, turn it into toffee, and then sell it to someone, and they'll give you more money than you paid for it. I was like, this is a great idea. So then I started doing that, and then that's how it all developed, basically. Tell us about your apprenticeship when you were young. You worked at um, Michelin Star Restaurants in the UK. What, what were those kitchens like, and what impact did they have on you? Look, to be honest, I, I, I only actually worked, well, I, I staged at a, a few Michelin star restaurants. I only actually worked at the Village Bistro in Jersey, which was a one star, but I worked for the few chefs who've had stars. So like Terry Laybon had a star for 20 odd years. When I worked for him, he'd give it up and then we tried to win another one at the hotel, but we never achieved that, unfortunately. And um, I worked for Paul Heathcote, who also had two stars, but I worked at his, um, his, his more of his brasserie style. Uh, but the kitchens were great. Like, I love that. I love, I love, direct information you know being told exactly where, know where you stand uh you know if you're doing something wrong i want that instant feedback i don't need someone to to, to give me any fluff I'm, I'm i'm more than happy to be told that that isn't right and i need it better next time and that really worked for me that that, that really I'm, I'm very uh i i i perform better in that environment if you like you mentioned that it was in those days that you started learning the art of charcuterie. Um, tell us about some of the lessons that you learned in those days. Well, obviously, you know, definitely with Terry and and with Paul Heathcote as well. You know, they the old school training. You know, so you know they worked in old old fashioned kitchens and the the teacher the fundamentals. You know, the temperature, the cut, the best ones to use, using jowl over back fat. You know, using fresh blood over dry blood, talking about black pudding and things. Um, different cuts to use, you know, the more fatty cuts, the, the fat levels, take away, the, trim it back. At, and then, so, you know, you're putting, you know, a lean shoulder, but then put the fat back on top. So, you know, you're getting the exact percentage. Just these kind of things, you know, like obviously temperature, um, emulsifications, 
all these kind of things that you need to know to, to get it right. And obviously, the, these kind of uh, products, excuse me, these kind of products, you need to make sure that every step is done correctly. If you miss a step and it doesn't get right, it, the end product, it's game over. And it's there's no way of pulling it back. Everything, you know, from the, the, weighing, out of the, the weighing out of the spices and the, you know, and the nitrite and these kind of things and the and the the, the mincing of the, the mincing of the the meat, not overworking it, it, it on the mixer, making sure that like I say the temperature's all right, to make sure that you're not getting any air when you're putting it into it, make sure you wrap it nice and tightly, making sure it goes in the oven at the right temperature and the core temperature is the right thing, resting it long enough, pressing it. You know, there's so many stages along the way that just to focus on each stage and get each stage right. You also worked with uh, Heston Blumenthal. What, what was that experience like? So that was a stage. So I, yeah, I, I worked there for six weeks um, as a, I think, it was, I maybe mean, eight weeks, eight weeks as a stage. I was working at Rockpool in Sydney. They come over to do a dinner and, um, and I just, you know, I just blatantly asked him, you know, Shy Ben's getting out. I don't know if you're aware of that saying, but Shy Baby's getting nothing. So yeah, I am. Um, I asked, I just said, can, can we just get a, can, any chance of a stage and jockeying that were there? And he said, yeah, yeah, definitely come over. So I, had a, I was going home anyway. And um, I just went and did six weeks. And actually my wife, Rebecca, who's my business partner, she was the first ever front of house stage yeah, there. She did the front of house stage as well at the same time. And um, yeah, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. It was a, a massive eye-opening, you know, a massive eye-opener. It was the, the attention to detail, the 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 focus on each job, the 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 consistency. That's a I took a lot away about consistency. Never mind, just like it doesn't have to be the best product. So, for instance, they got this this salmon, and they said that this isn't the best salmon in the in the world, right? It's not the best salmon in the world, but it's the most consistent salmon in the world. Like the best salmon in the world, you can only get for seven months of the year. What we're going to do for the rest of the year, and then the standard drops. Do you see what I'm saying? So you're better off getting not the best, but the most consistent. And that 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 really stuck with me. That kind of I was like, oh, right, that makes sense. Especially when you're when you're not moving products around. You know, the fact Doug will set a menu, and it'll be maybe be like that for a, a, a period of time, maybe a year, maybe two years. They might change a few things here and there. And it's the same with us in the sense of you know we make we make a product for retail. It's not, you know, it's not going to change for the next, well, it hasn't changed in seven years. So you've got to get, make sure you get the most consistent product. Tell us about how important the pig is for charcuterie. Um, what what do you want from a pig to make the best products? Look, obviously we want, you can really tell the difference, first of all. You can really tell that there's free range stuff. And there's levels to everything levels to everything so you know you you can get you know bread free range you can get um rscp what is it rscpa is that right rscpa uh approved you can get a proper free range but then you get you know then you can get real high-end free range like bundara barcher and stuff just her stuff's free range but it's a lot different to the just a free range pig do you know what i mean so again we're trying to find a consistent product um within the market and it, it, it's all about you know the color the texture uh the the quality of fat so the fat's got a good quality of fat like uh in the sense of the feel of it it's not fluffy like i don't know if you know what I'm, i can't explain it like it's a it's got it's like a creamy fat it's not like a a fluffy 
fat if that makes sense like uh yeah like a lazy fat if you like it's a worked fat do you know what i'm saying like it's a fat where it's moved around and it, it's created this you know it's nice and creamy um yeah not not yeah i guess that's about that's what we, that's what we're always looking for firmness not too wet um yeah that's kind of that's kind of what we're looking for do you have any stories of um being on on a pig farm and seeing um your product before it comes to to be honest we i haven't i haven't not not from the pork that we use we 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 use a, a borodale which a lot of the people use it's it's probably it's a really really good free range uh high volume pork but for, uh, for pig fans i i refer back to um Lauren at Bundara Barksha, we I actually went and stayed on her farm at the um on the meat on the meat uh, have you have you ever been there? It's like a it's a I think it's an old meat truck that used to be on the railway lines or something like that. Like an old meat carriage. She has one of them on a farm and you can go and stay there. And yeah, I, we went up there with Monty, my son and my wife, and hung out at the farm and it's it's a it's a cracking spot and seen the pigs and yeah, it's awesome. They're they're an amazing thing, they're so smart and yeah, beautiful. And actually, there were. Do you say littering? I don't even know if that's littering. Is that what they say? I think you might say that. They, they were they were having babies, put it that way, at the time. And um, yeah, and I've seen the work that goes in in there, and they were up through the night and moving moving them around. And it's not an easy job, that is for sure. What led to the move to Australia for you? Um, I was actually meant to be going to Canada. So and then it all fell through last minute, and um, a friend of mine, Tom Anglesey, was working at Rockpool on George, and um, he said, "Why don't you just come out here in- instead?" So we 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 kind of turned on our heels and decided to go. What is it? East instead of west? Is that right? I think, hope that's right. I made myself look stupid, but yeah, we decided to go east, and uh, and yeah, and we we come along and. And it was just amazing. And then I actually went back home for a year. I was like, you know, Rockpool offered to sponsor me after I spent a bit of time here. And I went home and uh, I was like six months in. I was like, oh, that wasn't a very smart decision. You know, like, I was like, how am I going to get back? And I got back in touch with Rockpool and um, and said, you know that offer you said about me coming, it's, it's getting sponsoring me? They're like, uh, yeah. I said, is there any chance of me taking you up on that? Like six months later, and luckily enough, they were they were kind enough to do that. So yeah, I was. Uh, it was it was by luck, but you know, I guess you make your own luck. And it was it, what a, what a choice it was to come here. You spent time uh, in Key as well as part of the opening uh, and part of the opening team for Rockpool Bar and Grill in Sydney. Um, tell us about the experiences of those restaurants and what impact they had on you. Well, they were very different. They were very, very different. You know, at Key, it's incredibly um, refined. And obviously, at Barangwilla, it's, it's, a, it's a steakhouse. It's an Australian-style steakhouse. But, yeah, Key was a very – it was amazing. Um, yeah, the team at that point was incredible. I'd never worked with uh, so many amazing people in, in one – under one – in one kitchen. It, it was just – yeah, the list's endless, you know. Uh, Rob, who was now at Benelong. There was Sam, who went on to do White grass there was carl who went on who up to byron you know carl the the hawaiian japanese carl katachini that i can't remember his surname there was terry who then went on to work at sipia there was annalise who then's gone on to do what she's gonna do there was just so many people in that kitchen at that time um it was a yeah so that was fantastic and obviously that style of food was completely different to anything i've ever done right like 
I'd come here and I, I didn't know what abalone was. I didn't have a clue what abalone was. I didn't know, uh, you know, all the, the, the lobsters were completely different. They were like more, like, yeah, they were different to what I was used to. I mean, I'm used to the big uh, claws on the front, like the European style lobsters. And there was tanks in the kitchen. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? Like it was, yeah, like, like and then there were, we used to keep the mud crabs in the office. I'm like, what the heck is going on? It was like, it was mad. It was a mad place. Yeah, but, and it was so big, you know, they were doing big numbers and they were doing, they had the function room and it was, yeah, it was just a completely different environment. It was, it was a fantastic, uh, it was a great learning experience and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it there. Um, and then the, the, the difference between that and then bar and grill was, you know, very product driven, you know, great meat, great seafood, but very cut back, as everyone knows what rock pools are like, you know, it's, you know, simply seasoned olive oil, lemon juice, uh, high acidity food, real, you know, looks great, but you can almost throw it together and it looks fantastic, you know, solid recipes um yeah and that was a brand new opening in one of the best buildings in in australia in my opinion is a, is a dining room and you know it was you're there from a lad from the northeast of england in sydney one minute you prep you're plating up and every time the door swings open you can see the opera house and the next thing you're in a an old is it a bank or whatever it looks like if it's not a bank it should have been a bank i don't know whatever and uh you know and you're doing dinners with heston and you're doing dinners with uh Thomas Keller and all these guys. I was like, what the yeah, it was a it was a big jump. It was fantastic. It was it, it really uh it really opened my eyes. You made the move to Melbourne to work at the Rockwell Bar and Grill there and they're known for the incredible connection with uh, producers and quality products and a, an incredible meat program. What what's some of the, the pork dishes that you had on the menu at the time that you were there? The pork oh we used to do this the one with the uh well, we did them all of them as well. I think like the, the the suckling the suckling pig with the with the mustard fruit and the balsamic. That was that was a lovely dish, and you'd get like a different cut all the time. So you you do the whole animal, and then you would give two different bits of prim, a primary and a secondary. Um, we used to do some. What else did we do with the pork? It was. Um, but just moving away from there, just really quickly from Rockpool. The, oh well, obviously at Key there was the pork belly with the abalone. That was a, obviously a, a, a famous pork belly dish that, that they used to do at Key. Uh, that was that was amazing as well. And I guess the and then the one like I said there, the suckling pig, we used to do at uh, at Rockpool. But some of the other ones that I've done, you know, the black pudding that we used to do at Heathcote. That's an absolute classic. Uh, Heathcote dish, the black pudding with the grilled tomato and the poached egg. That, that was an amazing. We used to sell literally hundreds and hundreds of them. Very sweet. It's made with a um, with a reduction, you know, sugar and vinegar reduction. Uh, sultanas and different spices through it. It's a beautiful black pudding. And then when I worked for Terry, we used to do like a lot of pork dishes, a lot of things three ways or whatever. And we used to do like a piece of belly and then maybe a chop. And then we used to like get these, you know, the apples that are in kids' pack lunches, like baby apples. You know the ones I mean? They're small apples. And we used to core them out and then we fill that with a farce. And we used to bake the whole apple with the farce running through the middle of the apple. And we used to serve that as a garnish and different, you know, and move it, move the move the elements around. It was all yeah, that was awesome. That was it was, it was um, there's been many, many dishes, many pork dishes. You started City Lada quite a few years ago now, and it's um, available all over the country. It's a success; is incredible. What's some of the key products um, 
that have been the foundation for that success? Definitely the pork. The, 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 here we go, pork. But the, uh, the the pork and pistachio, the free range pork and pistachio terrine. It's super clean. It's super approachable. Kids can enjoy it. It's not overly gamey. Um, it's not overly spiced. It does definitely rely on the pork uh, being, you know, being the best quality you can get. Uh, a real subtle, subtle spice. A real subtle spice, but definitely like the the nice sweetness of the meat. And then with the iron, you know, the gaminess of the the liver, but all balanced out really approachably, if that makes it approachably, if, if that's even a word. But it makes it very easy for people to enjoy. So that's definitely one of the big, the big best sellers. And then the chicken liver pate is is definitely is the best seller. And we weren't even going to make a chicken liver pate, to be honest. It was Rebecca that said that we should do one. I said, you know, there's so many out there. Why would we do a chicken liver pate? And um and she was like, well, let's just make the best one. So that's what we went out to try and achieve. And, you know, in my opinion, that's what we've done. A lot of your products, whether it's a riette or a terrine or a pate, are made in traditional European restaurants. But how different is your setup compared to, say, a commercial kitchen? What's the crew like there and what's the um, mode of operation compared to a commercial kitchen? Yeah, well, look, to be honest, we all of our people that work for us are chefs. They've all worked. I'm going to say like 95 percent of them have worked at Rockpool at some point or another. We've got, you know, we've got Zach who was a, who was the head chef at Rockpool. We've got Chris B who used to be the head chef at Rockpool. We've got, you know, James was a sous chef with Zach uh, at Rockpool. Dickie was at Spice Temple. Yoshi was in the fish room at Rockpool. So we've, you know, we've got a lot of. We've, I think we've only got maybe two or three staff that haven't actually worked at Rockpool at some point in their career. Um, so it's very, it's very much similar, and, and I, I really believe in that philosophy. That, and then this is just the truth. Our, our strategy for recruitment is trying to get people who are maybe a little bit over the industry, maybe the partners, and maybe uh, work Monday to Friday. Maybe they've got children and they don't want to work nights. Um, you know, there's many, many elements that prevent people from wanting to keep working weekends and night shifts and these kind of things. So that's what we try and do. We try and get them guys. So to answer the question, the actual mentality of the kitchen is very, very similar. You know, it's still, it's still cause it's all chefs and we don't just have like workers, if you like inverted commas, it's not, um, it's not like a, like a, a big production. It's all, you know, we have a lot of people who are thinking about what they're doing and that's what creates the consistency. And, and, and obviously food, things change, you know, the onions might be a little bit wetter this, you know, because they've been stored differently or whatever it might be, but we have the people there to be able to react to these situations. Um, but all that said, what we do is because we focus on a f- few products, you can really, str- you know, streamline what you're doing and you can make it incredibly efficient. Like terrines and, and, and pate and things that are pretty awkward to make in kitchens, right? Like there's a lot of processes. Uh, like we split the jobs over a few days. You know, we might prep the meat one day, spices another day, onion mushroom bases another day, and then bring it all together on a specific day, if that makes sense. Where obviously if you're doing service and, it, they just turn out to be a bit of an arsehole. If you don't have someone on the larder, we would call it on the larder back home, um, running running that section, who's bringing all that together. Uh, it it, it makes it quite different. So I guess the difference is is how streamlined we can make things. City Larder has had incredible success, but what, what give us a sense of 
of what the growth has been like? How big is the company now? And, and what's the growth experience been like for you? Over 100% year on year at the moment. So year on year, every year, over 100%, 110%, 115% every year, year on year. And that's just the reality of it. So we've gone from we've gone from a, a higher share in a kitchen, so in like CBD kitchen or my other kitchen where we pay by the hour, to we're just about to move into a hundred and eleven hundred square meter all singing all dancing factory in seven years. You know, from me and my wife doing it, for me doing it, my wife doing the deliveries with my son in the car and an esky in the boot, to I think we're nearly at twenty staff now. You know. Yeah, so it's you know it's big, it's big growth. But that you know that, and the only way you can do that is with a team. That's it. There's no other way. You without it without a team, you've only got an idea, and that's just, and that's one of the biggest things I've learned. You know, and probably Khan from Rockpool was, the, was probably the main one that taught me that that you've got to look after the team. The team is what will be be able allow you to create what your what your vision is. Right? Do you know what I mean? So it's all about the team. We have an, an amazing team, absolutely an amazing team that we really love, respect, and, and we couldn't do enough for, you know. What are you most proud of, uh, of the journey of City Lada so far? Um, like, um, probably Rebecca. Rebecca's done an amazing job, absolutely amazing, amazing job. My wife, Rebecca, she runs the operations. Uh, without her, there's absolutely no two ways about it. Without her, the whole it doesn't it doesn't run like it just doesn't like, you know. I, we can, I can create everything, no problem, that, and that would all still happen. But like the way that her attention to detail, to replying to emails, to you know just everything, you know, she's really on the ball. Like I always say, we've got the best. Like I'm not everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm telling you, we've we've got the best in that position. There's no one better out there, in my in my opinion, and I genuinely mean it. There's no one better out there. What's next for you? I know you've had year-on-year uh, -year growth and you've got the new facility. What's what's the plans for City Lada moving forward? Well, we've got the distribution as well. So we're growing the distribution. So, like, you know, we, we, we're taking on new brands. You know, the reason, one, one the biggest reason why we took that on, I, 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 before before COVID, we had it, we had it planned. And um, I just really feel like there's that gap in the market for chefs, bringing products to market if that makes sense um like it's just you know it's blatant that that's that, that should happen like the the days of just having a restaurant with a front door and expecting that your only revenue stream is is archaic in my opinion right like you know you, you've got people who who can start who can do books and you might get some people who do tv deals and you might get people big instagram following that might do a bit of you know a bit of stuff on the side but you need to, in my opinion you need to be building something that, that like a product that you can bring to market and it, it you know you, it's something that you could sell potentially in the future something that that can work while you're not work that you don't have to work on it do you know what i mean it, it, it just has to work on the brand um, and I feel like there's a big gap in the market there. So we're there to take on chef's products. So like, you know, we've got LP quality meat, sausages, and, you know, different people, different chefs who are coming on board that we're going to try and sell their products for them. Uh, you know, and I, I just think, yeah, so we, that's one side of the business that, we grow, that we're trying to grow. Obviously, we've got the new facility. I, wouldn't, I would like to get into export, if I'm honest. I think there's a lot of business to be done in, in the Middle East. I think there's business to be done in Singapore. Uh, yeah, all I think there's, there's there's heaps of business. You know, if you look around, the, there's not 
there's so many IGAs, independent butchers, independent food stores. And then obviously we've got the food service thing. So with the shortage of chefs and and um, and the way that the training and, and the, the, the 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 price of staff and things, I think there's an element of business there that can be that can be got with taking the pressure off the kitchen. So like cook pork belly, cook duck legs. Uh, braised things. I think there's a there's business there for people and for other people to make dressings and you know Fabrica. Now we're doing pasta. We we support Fabrica in Victoria, which is part of the Regrati Group in Sydney. So they've got like a pasta that's out. It's, it's amazing pasta sauce. So you, in one packet you get the pasta and the sauce for two. It's an amazing product. The pasta is fantastic. Now they're bringing. They've just brought a, a ready to go like a fresh pasta for the food service market. So then, you know, I think there's big growth in them, them areas that high level products made by chefs who are, who are just focusing on what they do best. So they can get the best price for the flour, the best price for the eggs, the, you know, they can put the labor, bring the labor cost down because all the focusing on that, or they can buy the piece of equipment a, a big price to create the pasta quickly, efficiently, and then ship it out. And then basically you can make a pasta that's as good as you can make in a restaurant or a terrine that's as good as you can make in a restaurant for the same price. You've made an incredible shift from um, a top-level chef to award-winning charcutier. What is it that you love about what you do? I, I love the fact that you take a secondary product, you know, chicken livers, pork shoulder, back fat, jowl, whatever it might be, and turn that into a premium product. Like if, you know, that that's the that's the thing. And, and I love, and you know, people sometimes, I've said this a few times and so it puts people's nose out, but I like the fact of you buy a product, at, you know, whatever it might be at $7, $9, and then you can put a skill to it and you can sell it for $39. I like that. I think that, you know, you're paying for the skill. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we can all, uh, this is probably a shit, a shit example, but, you know, a lawyer or whatever, right? Like, he, we can all read, well, not all of us, I can't, but a lot of people can. Everyone can read and, 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 and sign the name, right? Do you know what I mean? But the skill in the lawyer or, or the solicitor or whatever is reading it and having the information to, to do what they've got to do to it to sign it off. And it's the same thing. You've got to pay for that. You pay for that skill. And that's what I, I love that. I love the fact that we're putting a skill to something and creating something better out of that product, if that makes sense. Well, Robbie, it makes complete sense. And we've loved having you on the crackling today to hear just a bit of your story. Um, good luck with City Larder. It's um, been an incredible addition to our food scene. Uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. It's yeah, it's been uh, been on. I've been I've been waiting to talk to you for a while. Actually, I was waiting for the call. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I appreciate. No, I do. I appreciate the time. And yeah, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to to tell you a little bit about us. This is the Crackling, a deep in the weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.